So we accidentally started a brand new tradition a number of years ago where after the Christmas services are all done here at the church, uh, my family of four and I, we'd, all, we, we'd pile into a car, load the whole thing up, and we would start to just drive south. Uh, we would keep driving south until we could actually see the sun shining through the clouds, which for any of you who have survived a Michigan winter, and I use the word survived intentionally, uh, you know that you have to drive a long way south to actually see the sun breaking through the clouds. And it was on this drive south that I had a couple of realizations. Uh, the first realization was that there is nothing better than the sound of my two kids in the back seat actually getting along. <laughs> There's nothing better than that sound. When, when, they, when they have like the screen and they do the share thing with the headphone splitter because we're cheap and, uh, and they have one screen in front of them, they're watching the same show together and, and when there's a joke, when something happens, it's dead silent in the car and both of them in unison just start busting out laughing. There's nothing better than the sound of my kids getting on. There's nothing better than the sound of my son saying one of the terrible dad jokes to his older sister, uh, my, my daughter. Something like, hey, Lily, uh, if April showers bring May flowers, what do May flowers bring? Pilgrims, yes, it's so good. May flowers bring pilgrims. I mean, it's, it's really sophisticated humor, so I understand it. <laughs> If it was just over, over your head a little. And then they laugh. And because it's so terrible, it's just, it makes them laugh even more. And then it like has this building effect. And they're laughing. They have like tears in their eyes because they're laughing so hard. And he's like, Lily, why are you crying? You know, and why are you laughing so hard? And she's like, I don't know. Why are you crying and laughing so hard? And it just builds. And there's nothing better than the sound of my kids getting along in the backseat. And the second thing I learned... There's nothing worse than the sound of my kids not getting along in the back seat. On one of these family trips, I made the mistake. I borrowed my parents' minivan, which I thought was going to be a lot, more, a lot more room and a lot more technology. When I say minivan, I want you not to think about a minivan, but a space shuttle driving down I-65 South. These things, I get, I'm not a minivan guy, but like I kind of get it. Like I get it, right? They've got the built-in screens in the back of the seats, all the gizmos, everything, so they can play games against each other. My parents are like, hey, don't, don't let your kids play checkers against each other on the game. Checkers is a no-fly zone. Don't do that. And I'm like, okay, come on. Like, I'm the parents, okay? I think I know my kids. And they're like, just stay away from checkers. You'll be fine. We made it all the way down to Florida. We made it halfway back after the vacation. They got along fine the entire time. We're stuck in traffic on I-65 somewhere in Tennessee. Colin goes, hey, Lily, you want to play checkers? And I'm like, no, Wait. We went here before. I don't, I don't know. But they've been so good for so long. What's the worst that could possibly happen? Five minutes. Five minutes into checkers. They're like at each other's throats. You cheated. No, you cheated. And then the fight does the thing like even as adults we all had where it jumps the rails and it's no longer about the checkers anymore. It, the fire has left the designated zone and it's burning everything. And it's like you're on my side. Well, you're breathing my air. And they're just like at each other. And the car, meanwhile, still has not moved an inch towards home. And I'm stuck in there and I'm really realizing there is nothing worse than the sound of my kids not getting along. And the reason why I mention that is we're in a series right now. We're actually finishing the series called Your God is Too Small. And I want to just clarify, God isn't too small. 
The fullness of God in Jesus that we see and that we sang about is not, is far from too small. But the boxes that we put God into are far too small. And today we're looking at a box that we put God into called a political God. And I heard from several of you throughout the week and leading up to even this morning, topic like this makes us a little bit nervous in church. So I'll do the heavy lifting, all right? You guys can just kind of sit there and have a little roast pastor over lunch later. That's, I'm good with that. I'm used, I'm used to that. But the boxes that we put God into are often far, far too small. And to illustrate this point just a little bit more, I'd like to take us on a journey to a place many of us would push uh, down into a deep, dark hole uh, called like March, April, May of 2020. I know. I don't want to think about it either. Yeah. Um, but we go, we go back to that time and like the world is shutting down and it's just, and we knew, we all knew in that moment, didn't we, that that, that that would be a time that you would talk about probably for the rest of your life. That people would ask, where were you when? And, and you would have an answer. And we were like living through it and the whole thing was done in like slow motion. And we knew, we knew that we were writing a story with our lives one decision and one conversation at a time. And we're encouraged, left, right, and center, we're encouraged to write a good story. Like the whole world stopped and now like everybody is, is like listening in a way and, and open in a way that really the world has never been like, I don't think, before then. Certainly not in, in my lifetime. And we as the church had this opportunity to, as Jesus said, shine like a city on a hill. Let, let the others, let others see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We have this opportunity as a church, uh, as Paul said to the church in Philippians, to shine like stars in the heavens, to live like children of God without fault. But if we were to look back and, and to kind of just evaluate kind of what happened and how everything transpired, we could throw stones, and it's really not about throwing stones here this morning, but just kind of doing a little light evaluation. I don't think we did. I think a better description would be Paul writing not to the Philippians, but to the Corinthians when he said, you argued and grumbled with one another. And it was a lot of arguing. And there was a lot of grumbling. I get, I get it. We were all there. This is a shared experience that we had not too long ago. We, we argued with each other. We argued with the, with the cashier. We argued with the grocery store uh, greeter or clerk person. We argued with local health officials. We argued with our governments. We, we argued incessantly. And our kids were watching. And it's not hard for them to kind of get this idea that what matters most in this world, what matters most to this generation of Jesus' followers isn't shining like stars, isn't letting our light shine before others so that we would see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. What matters most is winning. And for the next generation, that was a huge takeaway. And it's almost as if it's almost as if Jesus anticipated that this would happen. So what I'd like to do is kind of speak into that space, hopefully to provide a little light and provide a little hope on the situation. But, uh, but, but listen, what, what this world does not need is another passer on a stage, on a screen, <laughs> telling you what to do or what to think. We've had far too much of that already. So what I'd like to do is do my best to kind of step aside and to let Jesus speak for himself because he anticipated this. He knew this, and he even prayed specifically for this moment, specifically for you. 
And his good friend John was there and captured the story, wrote it down so that we would be encouraged thousands of years later when his Lord and Savior and ours, Jesus, prayed for specifically you. And so uh, what Jesus recognized so long ago is that differences will exist among us. Differences are inevitable, but division is a choice. And Jesus knew He knew these differences, and he knew how easy it would be to choose division. So what Jesus did is he prayed for you in that moment when it's such the low-hanging fruit, and it's so easy to grab onto, especially when it means that there could be a win at the end of it all. And this is what he prayed. In John chapter 17, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. And the thing I just want to highlight right here is this this word, the hour has come. And it's so important for Jesus to to recognize that this hour has come, especially in John chapter 17, because this is a prayer that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane moments before he's arrested, moments before he knows what's about to happen, where he's mocked, he's beaten, he's crucified, he's dead, and he's buried. In the kind of chronological, chronology of time, what we have right now is Jesus on a Thursday And he knows what's coming. He knows the arrest is imminent. And he knows that tomorrow on Friday, he's going to be crucified, dead, and buried. And he knows also that he's going to be resurrected on Sunday. But this journey ahead of him has him stressed and anxious. And he takes those moments, some of the last moments that he has before he's dead. And he prays. And he prays for this hour that has come. That's the hour that he's talking about, the hour of his death. And listen, he prays that this hour has come that glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. And it's it's so strange that he would pray in this hour to be glorified so that he could turn in turn end up glorifying his father in heaven. Part of like what makes what doesn't make any sense about that is, be, is because the hour that he was most glorified, you and I would have been most horrified, right? And we're talking about his death and his crucifixion. And he's like, yes. That's glory, not just for me, but it's the glory that I do with that. I, I give that back to you, God. I reflect that back to you. And for the rest of us, we're going like, no, 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 that's not glory, that's horror. What we recognize something here about winning is that sometimes winning doesn't always look and feel a lot like winning. Like I said, the hour that Jesus was most glorified, you and I would be most horrified. Jesus had an entirely like different uh, outcome set in mind. It looked like for all the world, Jesus on the cross that Friday afternoon lost. I mean, we know what what took place afterwards. We know that Jesus also knew what would take place afterwards. It looked like a huge loss, and Jesus goes, no, 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 that's what glory looks like. A loss doesn't always look like a loss, and a win doesn't always look like a win. And some of us, we kind of get that too. We get that in our human relationships with one another. I'm going to paint you an entirely hypothetical and fictional illustration of a, of a couple's afternoon, and I just want to invite you to see if there's any part of this that you might find relatable. He comes home from work, and no matter how many times she has asked him to put his shoes uh, not next to the closet door, but into the closet door on this particular afternoon, like so many others, he puts his shoes right next to the closet where they go. 
And she says, there is a finite number of times that I have to ask him to put his shoes in the closet. And whatever that number is today, it's that number minus one. Apparently, we haven't hit it yet. So, honey, would you please, like I asked you a million times, potentially literally, to put your shoes in the closet door. And he proceeds to pull out his phone, and photographic evidence of every sock left on the living room floor, every toothpaste cap left off from the tube, every dish left not in the dishwasher or even in the sink, but next to the sink. And he goes through with photographic evidence every single one of these interactions. Let me just ask you the question. Who wins? No one wins in that illustration. I mean, everybody is just at each other's throats at this point. There's no win in that outcome, no matter how clear it looks like. What looks like a win isn't always necessarily a win. We have to remember Jesus. He's praying to be glorified in the hour that we would be most absolutely horrified. We're coming into this time, and I recognize it's strategically put. Today, we're talking about this politics thing and the and the elephant in the room with the donkey, I made that joke a little bit last week, right? But we're, we're coming back to it again. And we're going to talk about politics in a time when it's probably not as raised as it, as it will be, as it inevitably will be. And so I just want to kind of fast forward to that moment when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do in, in a November in the future. And I want to remind you something about the wins and the losses, the glorified and horrified. I want to remind you that your candidate could win on a particular Tuesday in November, But the church, especially our kids watching us, the church will win or lose every single day after that with how we respond and how we react to that news. And remember, a loss doesn't always mean a loss. A win doesn't always look like a win. Jesus goes on in his prayer, and he's got 19 verses of praying specifically for the disciples because, honestly, they need it quite a bit. Um, But then Jesus does something interesting. He goes, but my prayer is not for them alone. It's not just for them alone. And we're going to pause it right there because he knows they need the prayer. When Jesus goes, my prayer is not just for them alone, I think he might have in mind a couple of particular, uh, two of his disciples in mind. Uh, The first one is Simon, middle name the, last name Zealot. Simon the Zealot is his name, not actually his name, but it's, it's what he's called again and again. And it's almost like the biblical authors wanted to remind us of who Simon the Zealot was, because this is a person who believed in the overthrow of the, of the, of the Roman oppression that they were as Jewish people were under by by acts of terrorism. That was Simon the Zealot. And Jesus says, Simon, you know, come and follow me. And he's like, okay, this is, this is how it's going to work. And then Jesus does something, then Jesus does something that Simon, I don't think, predicted. And he goes, hey, Matthew, middle name, the last name, tax collector. <laughs> Matthew, why don't, you, why don't you come and follow me? Matthew, we don't know this for certain, but, but it's entirely possible that Matthew's uh, philosophy of life, especially towards the Roman overlords, was, if you can't beat them, join them. And so that's what he did on their behalf, collecting taxes and probably making a handsome amount of money off from it. Can you just imagine what some of those conversations were like among the 12 disciples? I mean, forget about Judas, right? And then like Peter and John bickering about who's the greatest. We forget that there's Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector who are supposed to be on the same team. And I think Jesus looks at that and goes, there's something honoring to me about this. There's something honoring about both of you together. He spends time in those final hours going, man, once I am removed out of this equation, 
and my bodily presence is gone. Dead, then resurrected, ascended to heaven. These guys are going to be in the backseat at their throats. And he spends 19 verses praying for them, and he goes, but my prayer is not only for them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them might be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. My prayer is for those who will believe. That's you. That's me. Jesus is specifically praying for you and me when he prays this prayer. It's not just Simon the Zealot. It's not just Matthew the tax collector. Jesus sits down in that garden and he's, he's praying and he's praying and he's praying. And he's praying for unity, that they would be one, that you and I would be one. And he's not just talking about the tax collectors and the zealot. He's talking about the Democrat and the Republican. He's talking about the, the independents. He's talking about the indecisive. He's talking about the libertarian. He's talking about the librarians. He's talking about everybody all together. And he's saying all of us that they, would, that they would be one as we are one. Now, this unity has a purpose to it, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, but I think it would serve us well uh, to take a small history lesson. Uh, this was interesting to me, and I just figure a big part of this job is just when I come across things that are helpful and informative to me, I'm going to pass them along to you. So we're going we're gonna to play this little game of like reclaiming some of these uh, early Christian roots in our faith, especially our outlook on life, how we make decisions, and maybe some of the politics along the way. A uh, little history lesson, right around uh, first century AD, lots of stuff is starting to become written about uh, these followers of Jesus, this first generation of Christians removed from those disciples who actually lived next to Jesus. Um, movements are breaking now. There's lots uh, written about those people. The accusation leveled against Christians wasn't specifically that they were a part of a new religion. That's part of it. But the accusation leveled on them against on a legal footing isn't that it's a new religion, but a new political identity. The word uh, Christian that's used the first few times in the city and region around Antioch, the Latin word Christian, it's used not separating Christians out from other religions. It's not Christian as opposed to like a Zeusian or a Jupiterian uh, followers, adherents to the god Zeus or Jupiter. No, no, no. Christian wasn't a religious distinction marker. Christian, as it was first being used, was a political marker, saying it's not just that they're a different religion, it's that, it's that we're separating Christian out from Herodian, adherent of Herod, or a Neronian, follower of Nero, or a Caesarian, a follower of Caesar. Christian is distinct from all of those. And I just think that's a little informative as we're starting to like shape and form our political identities and affiliation. We're trying to like make some kind of decisions. For those early Christians, following Jesus was a political decision that they had to make. In fact, they would say, I don't follow Hero, not Nero, not first and foremost. I don't follow Herod, not first and foremost. I don't follow Caesar, which is extraordinarily dangerous to say, not first and foremost. Because Christianity for me isn't just my religion. It's my first and foremost identity. And so you say, hey, listen, worship whoever you want. And in Rome, they had a ton of different religions and a ton of different faiths to choose from. It was a huge eclectic, eclectic group all over the world. They had all these religions and you were free, for the most part, to worship whoever you wanted. They didn't care. But worship anyone. 
but obey Caesar first and foremost, or first and last. And it was the Christians who said, I will worship Jesus. I will also obey Jesus first and foremost, first and last. My identity is first in him. And that's what started getting them into so much trouble. That's why being labeled as Christian was an accusation, not a description. Why it put their legal entity, their legal selves on the line, their lives on the line because of what they believed. I just think that's a little bit relevant even today. Because I still have conversations. We still have conversations where we start to get that mixed up. A couple years ago, I was at our Fulton Heights location, and a gentleman comes in and says, uh, hey, me and my family, you know, we're like way into church, and it's like, you know, fruit basket upset time in the church, and so like, hey, I'm not going to do this church anymore. I hear this one is new. I'd like to, I'd like to join this one, you know? And I, and I just, I had a few questions. I think we're not questions, they're comments, right? <laughs> There's no question mark on the end of these statements. And, and, uh, and I could tell very, very quickly, that one side or another, it doesn't matter, but they were very loaded in the accusations and the, the framing of the statements that are being made. And I'm just expecting, like, do you agree? And is this what you guys are all about? And really, honestly, whether I agreed with the thing or not, honestly, at that point, it, it wasn't, the, wasn't the point of the conversation at all. And I just said, hey, just want to pause this thing. <laughs> Right? Especially recognizing starting a new church, especially in like 2021, you know, it's hard. And yes, I would love for people to come to the new church that we're starting. After all, it is for them, right? I would love for them to be a part of the church, right? Yeah, I, dude, I got to stop you right there and say, it sounds like to me that, uh, that, that, you're, viewing, uh, that you're viewing faith through the lens of your politics. And you want to make sure that faith agrees with this lens of politics. And I just want you to say, for you to find a home here, you're going to have to view, uh, view politics through the lens of faith. In fact, we view everything through the lens of our faith first, not kind of this identification with a, with a political party or something. And I think where we're going wrong is just not, not in the issues really at all, but it's just we're getting those things mixed up, like this first and foremost kind of identity thing of, of what informs the other. And because I want no part of that at all whatsoever. No, I'm comfortable with where I am, and we, and we haven't seen it back. And that's okay. <laughs> but for us as a community to make sure that, that when we look at our identity, listen, the first thing that matters, the first thing is our identity in Christ, and everything else is an expression of that identity. That's huge. That's, and it actually, it actually makes this thing that Jesus calls unity possible, because now we can have this common ground to build from that says, listen, in Jesus, in Jesus, the foot of the ground, the foot of the, the cross is level ground. In Jesus, we can actually move forward. In unity with Jesus, we can move forward together. But I don't want us to think that like unity is the point, though. And that's, that's where kind of this conversation, uh, probably for grown-ups, like, yeah, it gets pretty nuanced in this thing. Because just the disciples getting along isn't the point. Just churches, even in divided times, getting along isn't the point. That's circular, and that's ultimately self-defeating. Uh, communities, even being a little bit better off because people are getting along, isn't the point. Even cities, countries, j- just getting along isn't the point. Jesus steps back and goes, dude, I've got something so much bigger in mind. It's, it's really not about just getting along, and it's certainly not about one side winning over the other side, because remember, when everybody fights, it tends to be everybody loses. No, what I have in mind, he goes, is this right here. May they also be one in us, so that 
the world may believe that you have sent me. It's that phrase. A New Testament scholars call this, in one word, it's a purpose clause. It's one word in the original language, purpose clause here in our language today. May they be one so that the purpose of our unity isn't just to get along. The purpose of our unity isn't just to make our communities a little bit better, although that is a fruit, that is an end result. The purpose of unity and getting along is so that the world might believe Like Jesus had this thought thousands of years ago and says, man, if Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector could could get along and in unity move forward, and if they could could put their differences aside, and if they could share this hope of the gospel with with everybody that they interact with, and and if the Christians that would believe the message that they carried with them would teach it to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation, man, if, if these Christians could move forward in unity, man, I think that the whole world might believe in this gospel message. That's the point. The point of unity isn't just unity itself. That's circular. It's bigger than that. It's broader than that. The point of our unity is to demonstrate to the entire world that it's not about these different things. It's about his resurrection. Our unity demonstrates his resurrection and his resurrection power. And it is that powerful. It has been that powerful. Again, we come to this first century Christianity, and just, it's just notice how peculiar the whole thing is. You know, and they can't just pick up a phone and, like, call each other and say, like, what's this whole thing about? Or let's just check their Facebook page or whatever, see their statement of beliefs. No, this Jesus movement is, like, spreading out, and pretty soon, around 100, 112 AD, it's really getting a lot of attention. And so this one guy in modern-day Turkey, he was this Roman magistrate, he's a philosopher, he's a writer, he's a legal guy, he, he did, like, pretty much everything, and he wrote a ton of letters, 247 letters are preserved yet to this day, thousands of years old, preserved to this day. His name's Pliny the Younger in 112 AD, he wrote a letter to the emperor in Rome. And he writes this letter and goes, Emperor, I know that we're supposed to be persecuting these Christians. I know that we're supposed to be against them. I just don't know why. And so the context of this letter is to simply ask for the emperor's advice for him as he kind of influences and leads this little little patch of, of Rome that he has some authority over. And he goes, you're going to be happy to learn, emperor, that I actually captured a couple of these Christians, right? I put them in jail. I let them stew for a little while, really get them anxious, really get them worried. He goes, I roughed them up a little while while they're in prison, so don't worry about that. We're going to get the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth out of these guys. And emperor, this is what I found, and I just want to invite you to respond. And so one of the letters that we have from Pliny the Younger in 112, right around 112 AD, uh, he goes, um, the substance of their fault or error, <laughs> this is what they're doing wrong, has been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively. Uh, that's like Latin uh, coded words for, they sang really loud. They were into it, emperor. Whatever they were up to, they were all in. And man, they they got up before dawn because 
Well, they had jobs and they had families and they didn't want to interrupt everybody else. And so we would meet on a fixed day so when nobody else was meeting and we would sing passionately a hymn to Christ as to a God and bind themselves by oath, not to some crime. They didn't bind themselves to like rob a bank or some kind of heist together. No, it wasn't to some crime emperor, but not to commit fraud, theft, adultery, not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. They, they committed to each other every week not to, not to rip anybody off, not to steal anything, not to cheat on anyone or with anything, not to falsify their trust. They, they committed to each other to pay their debts even when nobody was looking. And when this was all over, this is so strange, it was their custom to depart and to assemble Again, to partake food. And, and you know how we were thinking that they ate flesh and drank blood all the time because of those weird words that they were using? No, they just ate bread. And they just like drank wine and juice. It's just like normal. He goes, it's, but ordinary and innocent food. And Pliny the Younger, 11280, he goes, Emperor, like this is my problem, man. What do you do with the people like that? I know we're all supposed to be against them, but like I, I captured a couple, I roughed them up a little, and this is what I found. What I found is that they're gathering together to pretty much pledge an oath to be the best possible citizens in the Roman Empire, to bless everybody else that's around them. What do you do with somebody like that? What do you do when now my citizens are going, man, those Christians, I don't understand what they believe. It's all an entire, it's a mystery to me, but dude, I would love to work for one one day. You know, because think about that environment. Think about that workplace environment that that dude is creating. Wow. <laughs> like, emperor, I, I don't get these people and their language, the brother and sister, and they're married, and I, I don't understand any of their language or their sacred texts or how they go about their life. But, but dude, my daughter is at the dating age right now, and she is looking at connecting with a couple of these guys. And the Christians around who are swearing an oath to treat people with honor, dignity, and respect no matter who they are and to always tell the truth. If I'm honest, Emperor, I kind of want my daughter to date one of them. What do you do with these people who when somebody gets sick, they don't just leave, but they actually stay and look after them and care for them until they either get better or die and then they give them the dignity of a burial no matter what they believed in their life. What do you do with the people? What do you do with the people who, when, when we have a baby that we don't want, we just set it on the hillside and just kind of casually walk away? Because it's property, it's not a person, but they go, that right there is the very image of God. And they go and they rescue that baby, they take it home and they raise it as their own. What do you do, emperor, with a people like that? And we've seen what happened with a people like that. You know, we look at it and go, I think... I think a unity like that could demonstrate a resurrection power. I want to say, like, what if that was recreated? And you think that's a pipe dream that could never actually happen, but it did, though. And we're evidence of it right now. It did, though. And the whole world threw up their hands, a broken and divided at each other's throats kind of world threw up their hands to follow a crucified Christ. That is resurrection power. Especially when you consider the alternative. The alternative of choosing to 
let a view divide me and you. You guys know what a view is? A view, a view is an ever-changing, ever-evolving set of opinions on a certain matter. A you is somebody who is loved to death and back by Jesus Christ. Why would we ever let a view divide a me and you? start to see it. That our unity demonstrates his resurrection. And so we're going to be the kind of Jesus followers that I think he intended us to be. And we said, I'm not going to. I'm going to fight against it. I'm going to rail against it. I'm not going to let a view divide me from you. It's so shallow so short-lived. Not this November. Next November, you're going to go into a ballot area and you're going to fill out the little bubbles. If you're a good citizen, you'll probably do it a few more times before that. You should probably say, I hope you do. That's being a good citizen. There's big decisions on the line when everything is heated and it feels like everything is at stake and you're going to choose a, a party affiliation. And I want to honor that and say that's a, that's a good thing. But, but when you do that, that's a view. It's an ever-changing, ever-evolving set of opinions on a certain matter. It's a view. It's not a you. The people that you drove there with, the people that you're going to go home to, that's a you. Don't let the view divide a me from a you. Because it's so short-lived, you're going to go in that voting area, and you're, and you're going to select a little bubble that says Republican. You're going to select a little bubble that says Democrat, maybe a couple other ones on there. But I just, if, some, if we have some brave souls who are willing to share their, their voting plans, how many of you are going to go into that little ballot box area and vote for somebody from the Whig party? Right? History lesson, that's a real party. Yeah. Very active, held national office. Or, or how many are going to go in that, in that voting box and vote for a, a federalist candidate? Or, or go for a, vote for a, a know-nothing party? An actual thing. I looked it up earlier this week. The know-nothing party, very active in the mid-1800s. National office. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to vote for a Whig or a know-nothing party. Why? Because political parties, they come and they go. They evolve and they change. They morph into something else. And keep that in mind when you go home to a you. That Jesus loved to death and back. And he asked you too as well. And then when God, the Father, adjusts his mirror, and he looks back, there is nothing sweeter to the ears of our Father in heaven than his children getting along. I want to invite you to stand up wherever you are as we sing these praises to our God. And we pick this song intentionally, a thousand hallelujahs, because as we go into this song, I want you to imagine people across the world and across all of time gather standing before the throne, the know-nothing party, the Whigs, the Democrats, the Republicans, everybody standing before the throne and declaring and shouting up thousand hallelujahs in his name, Jesus. That's what we pray. God, we pray that we would stand before your throne and we would declare to you, we would shout before you our thousand hallelujahs. God, because it would remind us about our first identity. It would remind us about what you care about, who you care about. It would remind us of the resurrection power inside of each of us when we can look at the line 
and not draw it to keep anybody out, but to cross it and bring them in. God, you did this for us. You crossed the line of heaven to earth to bring us over. I think we can probably cross a few lines too. Jesus, thank you for showing us the way and for giving us hope. Amen.